I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres. We also hope to give you unique insights into your favorite authors and keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. Well, I was really, really thrilled that Sarah Jessica Parker uh, had agreed to join us on the podcast. She's now the editorial director of her own imprint. It's called SJP for Hogarth. And we talked about how she does it all. I mean, she's got a fashion line. She's now got this imprint. She's still acting in film. She's been on stage. I mean, it's, and she's got three kids. So I was really, really looking forward to speaking with her and particularly because her first book in her imprint is called A Place for Us and it's available now. It's her imprint's first acquisition and independence booksellers across the country have been wild about this book. I loved it. Our CEO at RJ Julia, Lori Fazio, has not stopped talking about it. So I think it's a pretty good start for somebody's first book uh, having their own imprint. Sarah Jessica Parker is an actor, producer, designer, entrepreneur, philanthropist, fashion icon, and mother. And if that wasn't already plenty for one woman to do, she is now a publisher, creating an imprint, SJP, at Hogarth, which is itself an imprint of the mega publisher, Penguin Random House. She was in a TV series many of our listeners might have heard of called Sex in the City, piling up 10 Emmy nominations as a producer and an actress, nine Golden Globes, winners in both categories. She also trained in ballet, is an acclaimed stage actor, and now taking her place in the world of books with her imprint and partnering with the ALA, creating Book Club Central. She is joining us today as the publisher of her first book, A Place for Us, by debut writer Fatima Farheen Mirza, a book described by NPR as a miracle of a book, a work of real beauty and fierce originality. Sarah Jessica Parker, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Sarah, let's start with this. In 2016... I listened to you present the Penn Literary Service Award to J.K. Rowling, and I was struck by your passion and attachment to the world of reading. What ignited that passion? My mother. (laughs) Um, My mother is a great, avid, I've called her a, a greedy reader. She grew up very attached to books. I think she was shy, and books became very reliant (laughs) friends and companions for her. And when she became a mother, I think, and she was an educator, talking about reading, the value of reading, how important developing that love for curiosity about story was, I think, maybe the most important thing to my mother. And so there were lots of rules in our house, and one of of which was that you couldn't leave the house without something to read, without a book. And actually, Mm. even as children who, who actually weren't able to read yet, you were still meant to leave the house with a book to look at pictures. If you went to an art museum, you brought a book. If you went to the symphony, you brought a book. And at a certain point in, in all of our lives, I'm one of eight children, that choice became our own because we too became readers. We too, um, all of us, all eight kids are, are readers, are people that love to escape in great stories and storytelling and to be transported by great 
authors. And so um, it is because of our mother's influence in our lives. Sarah, did you own books or did you start by going to the library? We went to the library, yes. We couldn't afford books, so we went to the library, as did my, my mother as a young child. My mother was at the library all the time from the time she was a very little girl. In high school in Cincinnati, Ohio, the librarians saved books for her. They saved the New Yorker for her. They saved the New York Times for her. In Cincinnati, we had a wonderful uh, local public library in our community called Clifton. It was the um, Clifton Public Library. And our whole family still goes to the library probably at least once a week. But I buy books now because I, I can't afford to, and I love to keep them as memories and fill our bookshelves. And I, when I look at the bookshelves, I'm taken to a time and a place based on a title I see. So we are great and um, proud uh, supporters of our local libraries. How did you even come to get approached by Penguin Random House with the possibility of creating your own imprint? Well, about five years ago, I was at a luncheon, and as I was leaving the luncheon, it was a luncheon that had been arranged by Joanna Coles, who was then, I think, editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan Magazine. She put together a luncheon of women in New York City. Uh, included uh, in, among the guests was Molly Stern, who's a big fancy pants publisher at Crown, Penguin Random House, Hogarth, etc. And she was there with Gillian Flynn, and they came over to say hello to me. I had been photographed walking around with Gillian's book, Gone Girl, early in its publication. And they just came over to say hello and say thank you for supporting the book. And we started talking about books, and it came to my attention that Molly was about to publish a book that I had been trying to get my hands on, um, that I had been reading about on blogs, called The Dinner by Herman Koch. And it had been published overseas and in international territories, and I could not get my hands on it. And there there was the publisher right in front of me. So we exchanged numbers and she sent me a wonderful parcel of books the next day. And included among those books was a title that was to be published in about four or five months called A Constellation of Vital Phenomenon. It was a debut by Anthony Mara. Exactly. And strangely enough, I read that book first. I don't know why it called out to me, but I did. And I, I was gobsmacked. And I was uh, 50% through the book, and I emailed Molly, and I said, "Listen, I, you know, I don't know that I can be helpful or what I could possibly do, but I think this book is important and special, and this is a very exciting new voice in American, you know, literary fiction because the subject matter was. It seemed hard to market, you know, a, a story about a village in Chechnya. I just offered to help, and I, I did end up doing, you know, some interviews about that book, and from that we started a book club. And the purpose of the book club really was to read yet-to-be-published novels in the literary fiction space primarily, although not exclusively, and to find ways to support writers and booksellers and reading and to press books into hands. And about two years into that, Molly and Maya, who's her boss at, at Crown and David Drake, who's head of uh, marketing and all of that at Crown, Penguin Random House, and all of those imprints, asked me if I would consider um, starting an imprint. And though I demurred and thinking I was not capable of that and wasn't experienced enough and frankly just had too much respect for people who do it well and spent years of their adult life doing it, they convinced me that with um, a small but really experienced team around me, that it was something that I, I could do and that I should do. And as long as I understood that I wouldn't be a line editor, but rather, you know, an editorial director. I was really excited. I mean, I am a, I'm a reader. It's, you know, it's how I choose to spend my time off. Even when I'm working, I'm reading on sets any chance I get. So it, it's been a thrill and, and certainly nothing I ever imagined I would have the opportunity or privilege to be part of. How does the process work? It works just like all other imprints. So 
around the time that we announced the imprint, I spent, oh, a week or so just going door-to-door to different literary agents, just meeting everybody in New York, you know, taking meetings and trying to convey my intentions, my interests. And from that, and then the public announcement, we just started receiving submissions, just like um, other imprints, and started reading. We all read at the same time. There's just a really a team of two or three of us. And I worked directly with Lindsay Sagnet, who was Anthony Mara's editor. She was the editor for Fatima's book, A Place for Us, um, as well as another amazing editor named Alexis at, at Hogarth and an editorial assistant, Rose, and we all read at the same time. So we function very much like all imprints who are, who are you know... Acquiring titles. Yeah, acquiring titles and really at the mercy of a literary agents sending submissions our way. So what, what kinds of books, Sarah, have you rejected? Well, I would, I, I would say I, I, rejection sounds so ah, uh, painful. I think what I'm looking for, it's perhaps a better way of talking about that, is what I'm looking for. I'm really interested in, in global voices. I'm interested in literary fiction, and that's, a very, I think, a very unique and special uh, genre category mm-hmm. of, of fiction. It's, it takes, I think, it requires more caretaking. Um, it's, um, it tends to be topics and characters that are, are, are more unfamiliar. They're not always mm-hmm. thought of as commercial books. So I think when 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 we pass on a submission, it it it's usually because it it doesn't it doesn't square with that particular criteria. You know, the books that I'll be publishing tend to be about cultures that are less familiar, not as often spoken of, written about points of views um, that don't normally get to publish. You know, Fatima is a 26 year old Muslim American. Um, this is a story about um, an American family and all its plurality. Uh, but they are Muslim, and the parents are immigrants. The children were born in the States, and to my knowledge, there's been no book written that tells this type of story and talks about culture and faith and um, and those particular ties that bind. And um, uh, so when I when when we pass on a submission, it's 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 because the manuscript isn't 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 carving out new territory in a way that I'm hoping to share. Right. So let's talk about A Place for Us. I found this book to be incredibly absorbing about asserting yourself as an individual Mm. in a way that can be a betrayal Mm. to your culture. So describe for us a bit uh, the, the story of A Place for Us. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to describe the story because I'm so lousy at that. But I think you've touched on something that is, you know, been, we are both thrilled and shocked at how this book is resonating with readers. I should say it debuted at the shared spot of number 12 on the New York Times bestseller list, which is really unusual for literary fiction. It, it speaks to this author, Fatima Farin Mirza's skill as a writer, her unique voice, her singular style of storytelling, and also that it's very much about that very thing you just mentioned. You know, it's about a family. It's about loving and honoring the people, the grown-ups, the, 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 the people in your life who have raised you, who have sacrificed for you. It's about feeling like you are, in fact, you know, believing in uh, your, your, your observance of faith, but also, as we all must do, carving out our own place in the world. You know, what does it mean to be an independent person? And how do you how do you define who you are without feeling that you are betraying those you love, without betraying a faith 
um, that perhaps you still believe in but want to practice in a different way. And I think that's a story for whether or not it's our own story, it's, it's a story that we can, we can relate to to the degree that we are all trying to find our way in the world. And sometimes we're living up to parents' expectations and sometimes we're not. And how scary that is to, to walk away, to reject ideas um, without rejecting them. Those are hard places. Those are hard, that's a hard place to be. But it's a beautiful um, deeply touching, I think, unforgettable story about a family. And, you know, what's interesting about the timing is that it feels very much a book for our times, but has been, you know, she's been writing this book for eight years. It wasn't intentionally a political treatise. It wasn't a commentary on, um, at all on this, you know, current political climate, but it, it, it feels very timely. So to give a brief description for our listeners, is it's a story of a family that has emigrated from India to California, and the parents or the family is Muslim, and they very much, as parents, want their family to retain that sense of faith and identity as they're raising three kids in the United States. Yes, and what's interesting, too, and I think this is what's, you know, what's so interesting about so many immigrants in our country is that they very much want them to retain the faith and the ideals of the faith, but they also believe in the in the American dream. They want them to be Americans, right? They want them to experience all this country has to offer, right? And then she beautifully weaves in the parents' background, the children's background, to show how it came. It almost feels like a moment of mystery Yes. about whether the son will or will not be able to reconcile with his family. And the thing that is clear is the good faith among them all, faith mm -hmm. in, in the double entendre of that word, faith to their family and faith to their religion. Yes, and, and trying to find faith for them within themselves. You know, there's a scene in the book um, that I could relate to, because my parents are immigrants, where Hadia wanted to go to a party of her best friend, a 16th mm -hmm. birthday party, and her father forbid it just forbid it, didn't want her with boys, didn't want her dancing. Mm -hmm. And Hadia had to decide for herself how could she be respectful to her parents and at the same time go on and live her life in a way that allowed her to be independent. What struck me is, to your point, is how contemporary that feels, the fact that these families are an integral tapestry of our country. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's why I think it's a book for our time. I think they're a perfect example. You know, so, so many immigrants that come here because it feels safer, uh, opportunity exists, they're fleeing conflict, you know, all sorts of um, unthinkable circumstances. But then there's also families like, you know, this fictional family that is, you know, they come here because they see opportunity and they want to raise a family here and not take advantage, right. but rather contribute, be part of the American dream and, and the promise of, you know, our great lady at the southern tip of, you know, Manhattan. I, too, I'm, you know, come from immigrants. I am grateful for the sacrifice they made. You know, I'm grateful for the diversity and, and the complexity of who we are. I think it makes us better people. And the more we get to read stories, that's what I love about literary fiction, is the more we get to read stories about people unlike ourselves, the more we're exposed right. to what feels very unfamiliar, foreign, maybe sometimes scary to some, I think, you know, we cultivate empathy. We um, 
we become more curious, we become more comfortable with people being different. Um, and I think it's, it's especially necessary right now. When you discovered a place for us, did you know right away that you wanted this to be your first book? Because you were reading a lot of manuscripts. Right away. I wasn't very deep into the book, and I emailed Lindsay and Molly and Rose, and I said, I think this is going to be tough to get. I think a lot of people are going to want this book, but let's go for it. I mean, you know, I don't have the same kind of dollars to compete with some of those better known imprints, but I will certainly do my best to make our case. And hopefully I wanted an opportunity to speak to Fatima to tell her how this book had affected me and and how much I thought it was necessary to get it into as many readers' hands as possible and that I would do everything within my power to introduce her to the world and introduce the name Fatima um, Fari Mirza to the world of, of, you know, readers. And she allowed us this opportunity, and it's been, you know, such a privilege. It's been such a joy to witness this publication and to see it be received so enthusiastically by readers and reviewers, and I'm, I'm so proud of her. She has a great future. Well, one of the things that I think it does that is, is resonating at, with all the readers at R.J. Julian, we've been having so much fun hand-selling this book is it takes a family that you might decide is foreign to you mm. and make that family so familiar. Mm. You know, and when you, when you talk to people who seem racist but then are in a relationship with a person that they might be racist with in general, they're not on a one-in-one, and I feel like the book does just that. It's as if you're meeting these people and understanding this family in a way that you might not in real life. Correct, yeah. And once again, you know, I think that's very fortuitous timing, but, but that, and once again, is my keen interest as a publisher is, you know, it's, it's every day. We, we, you know, I live in a city. I sit on the subway all the time. I'm at a crosswalk. There's millions of people, you know, whose lives I, we all pass each other. And I don't know anything about them. And on the surface, they can appear one way. But you, you have an opportunity to get inside and to really fillet, you know, life, uh, family life inside behind the closed doors of privacy in the privacy of a home and you you learn so much about people and if as long as writers are gifted and able to convey those lives those cultures those feelings those intimacies those missed opportunities um those bad choices those the, the, those um best intentions gone wrong the more we understand people the more the more we stop when we see somebody and, and see and then something else. And, um, you know, I think that's why books like Exit West have been so important. Um, you know, and why Anthony Mara's book, I think, was so deeply affecting and why it won mm. so many awards is that, you know, on the surface it seems dry, this topic. You know, people in a village in Chechnya, war-torn Chechnya, you know. Uh, but you get inside the lives and you learn about their hopes and dreams and disappointments and triumphs and their professions and their lives as romantic partners and daughters and sons and wives and uncles and best friends and betrayal. And you start to understand people you didn't think you would ever know. So speaking of that, Sarah, I had heard in an interview where you uh, were asked about, do you read e-books? And you talked about something that I could 
totally relate to, and that is before ebooks, you would literally have a suitcase that just had books. Yes. And although you read print books at home when you're traveling, you've you've found ebooks. What about the kids? Are they reading ebooks at all? They are. I did get them. Um, I got them the very simple Kindle, the one that's like super yep. simple, um, and they they love it. And and I did it for that very reason because, as you said, like in the old days, I used to cart around suitcases just for books, and it is amazing to be able to have so many books on the Kindle. Um, and a great advantage, um, but they they really like holding a book. So they're happy to have the, they think they're really privileged. They can't believe they have a Kindle, and they know its purpose, mm-hmm. but they still love holding books. They like reading aloud, so that real print for them has something that obviously a Kindle won't, but they're they're not without gratitude for that Kindle because they, they, they know what it, they know it, it's like a super muscular, crazy big suitcase. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Jenny Bix is a friend up here in Maine, uh, mm-hmm. where we come in the summer, and obviously uh, she you she worked with you on Sex in the City, and she said you always had a hardcover book on set. Yeah, um, I I did, and I and I and I still do. I tend to bring books on the set because it just seems I can tuck it away, and I always have a book if I'm in a scene with a purse. I have the book in the purse. If my character's got a mm-hmm. purse, I've got my book in my purse. If she's on a set in a kitchen, I've hidden it in a kitchen drawer. If she's on a set in a living room, I've hidden it under a couch cushion. We do try to get books in advance when we know a character is reading, and we try to get books in advance that we think are right for that character that she might be reading, and we try to do it in advance so that we can get clearance from the publishing house and the author. So what are you reading now, Sarah? So I'm reading a book called Favorites by Kate Walbert, who wrote A Short History of Women. Sarah, I read this book in manuscript. Kate's a friend. Oh, really? I am in love with this book. <gasps> it's called His Favorites. Forgive me. Oh, I'm so excited to hear that. It is brilliant. And like Fatima's book, where you would think that she wrote that Kate wrote this book because of the Me Too movement. Right. Um, it has to do with a relationship between a professor and a student. Right. And, in fact, she started it years ago. Wow. Oh, I can't wait. I'm excited. I'm, I was almost like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have read it. Maybe I shouldn't have gotten into it and saved it for the trip. But I sort of can't stop myself. You can't put it down. I can't put it down. It's very frustrating. It's, you know, Nan Graham at Scribner. She sent it to me. She also sent me um, a, a book called The Mars Room. Do you know it by Rachel Kushner? By Rachel Kushner. I interviewed her on the podcast uh, for Just the Right Book. And, boy, you and, I, you and I are definitely loving the same kind of book. Oh, I'm so excited. Constellation, which I, I couldn't get out of my head. It's my gold standard by which I judge every other book. Yeah, and, you know, who, if somebody said to you, would you like to read about a little boy in Cheshna during the war? Yeah. You, it, it wouldn't even begin to describe the sensibility of that book. Correct. It's a, it's an enormously special. Like I'm so excited to see what he does next. I can barely take the fact that he's not. He is a yet. genius. Like I'm like, give me another book. You know. Now, are you loving the Mars Room? I haven't started it. I'm going to bring it on our trip. You are in for a treat. Oh, I'm so excited. The other book that I'm um, that I read that I'm that I was very excited to read was the new John Boyne, you know, A Ladder to the Sky, you know, Maurice Swift or Morris Swift. But the other book that I'm excited about that a friend told me about, which isn't typical, is uh, Leonard Bernstein's daughter wrote a book, right? It's called Famous Father's Girl. I think it's Famous yes. Father 
Famous Father Girl. Have you heard about it? I hear it's wonderful. Um, and then I've also heard the new, the Ben Rhodes book is, is wonderful. People have, I have not read that either. So Ben Rhodes was in the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there have been several writers from the Obama administration yeah. that have written books, but Ben Rhodes seems to have caught the public's attention more than others. Yeah, I think um, maybe John Favreau has a book out now. And I think, you know, obviously it's doing really well. I think maybe Ben Rhodes' book, um, from what I understand, is a, 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 a more personal accounting right. diary, an autobiography in a way, a memoir. Um, and I think that's perhaps why it's, um, people are connecting it in, with, in more personal ways. One of the things that I was struck by as I immersed myself in Sarah Jessica Parker world <laughs> uh, to prepare uh, for our conversation is just how much you do. And I know I know you starred in the movie I Don't Know How She Does It, which is a wonderful book and and was a wonderful movie, but how do you do all these things? Um well, you know, I'm fortunate because I unlike many working mothers, I have support. You know, I have wonderful yeah. babysitters um and I can create a schedule that works for my children and my family. Um so I don't think it's so extraordinary that I do so much. I think what's extraordinary and sort of impossible to imagine is how all the working mothers, the millions and millions of working mothers and single parents in this country do what they do with no help, no support, no familial support, no community support, no child care they can rely upon. So I think that's the stuff that's that's really awesome. Um, I think I'm a very fortunate person. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm struck by two things in what you just said. I, you know, we do work with uh, low-income moms at birth about them learning about that they're their baby's first teachers and the mm-hmm. impact of language development. Mm-hmm. And I am stunned at what these moms have to deal with, where they might, they're, take, they're relying on public transportation. Yep. If they're fortunate to have a job, they, they sometimes are spending two to three hours to get their child to child care, yep. then to work, and then reverse the trip at the other end of the day, and I, like you, I am in awe of those women that managed to pull that off and keep their family together. And I wish we were doing better by them. I wish we were doing more to support those efforts, to support the efforts they're putting into raising children to do better by, you know. Sarah, why do you think we haven't been able to get that done and we can't get legislators or communities to commit in the way that just seems critical? Um, It's a good question, and I'm no expert. I don't know. My guess is that, I mean, my guess is that there are very powerful trade lobbies who have interests in in not supporting that kind of policy, that kind of legislation, legislation that lifts up women, raises their wages, gives them paid family leave, you know, um, equality in pay, you know, diminishes the pay gap that really keeps people living below the poverty line. Um, I think that kind of legislation is very threatening to lots of very powerful trade lobbies, is my guess, because we're all better when everybody does better. It's better for the economy, right? right? It's better for our children. People are less reliant on government programs. So the only thing I can think is that it 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 it, it benefits somebody who's powerful. <laughs> but I think all of that's changing. I mean, I think you know, I try to be an optimist. I do think that there are very um, there are very there are voices that are becoming louder, and they're talking about equality in ways that I think are um, 
legitimate, um, not hysterical. I think more and more legislators are uh, are understanding that um, you know women are a powerful voting lobby themselves. Um, they make huge differences in elections. We see it mm. all the time, especially women of color. And it's it's you know it's going to be hard to retreat from the kind of changes that have happened over the last year. And it's painful and it's complicated and it's challenging. And I think it feels very threatening to a lot of people. And I understand that. But I also think, you know, I'm a child of, you know, I'm a child that was benefited from government assistance. I know what it meant to my family to be able to get free lunches. And my dad was working hard, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but we needed help. And I know what that help meant to us and what it allowed for me. I know that the exposure to arts, because arts programs were funded by the government then, meant to our family. It created professions for many of us. So And now, now I can contribute to the economy. I can you know, contribute to organizations that are important and doing good work. So I'm hoping that I'm hoping that there's a sea change that's not just aggressive but meaningful um, mm. and really influential and um, and done so with grace and um, <laughs> with uh, and still robust. We don't have to treat people poorly to make our point. Um, we can be respectful of people who disagree. And I think. I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just a bitter ender believer. I don't know. Yeah, well, you know, I, I like to live in delusional optimism world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but some some days it feels a little daunting. I know. I know. I feel it all the time. But I have to kind of hope that the apparatus is stronger than than we think. What do you think? Because, you know, in you had eight kids in your family growing up, both your parents had jobs, yet it was still a challenge. What do you think was the ingredient that gave your mother the capacity to raise the eight of you as engaged as you all are or have been? Well, my mom's really industrious. (laughs) You know, she had big dreams, big hopes, lots of ambitions for us, like many, many mothers, every mother I've ever met. Um, But I think also we lived in a community and a time and a place where those opportunities weren't just ridiculous and delusional. I think they were real, you Mm -hmm. know. We could go to the ballet and get tickets that we could afford. Um, We could go to the museums um, in our city. The library existed. We took full advantage, you know. We had public schools, and my mom worked really, really hard to make those public schools the best they could be. She was part of, you know, integrating classrooms, um, getting rid of track classing, um, you know, bringing in new and progressive ways of educating because she had been an educator for so many years. I mean, she did everything she could to contribute and also find ways of um, exposing us to things that she thought would enrich our lives. And I think that's just because she, like I said, she wanted for us to have rich and interesting lives. And she wanted us to feel, I think, involved in the world. She was very, you know, politically involved um, on a local, city, state, and federal Way I mean, wow. you know, she, my first campaign I worked on was the McGovern campaign. I'll never forget it. Um, I wrote him a letter, and he told me he was coming to Cincinnati to speak. You must have been a little kid. I was. I was seven, I think, <laughs> six or seven, but he sure enough wrote back. Um, he came to Cincinnati. He met me and said hello. I mean, those are the kinds of things that really can change your life. You know, you feel like, oh, it does make a difference. I, I see that people, you know, if you if you kind of, Stick your neck out a little bit and ask questions. There might be some answers. And so, you know, that's just the kind of person she was and the kind of person I'm trying to be as a mother, but I'm not nearly as good at it as she was, that's for sure. Well, I, well you've, you've indirectly probably answered the question about how she does it all 
is she says she just says all I did was scream and yell at you guys. I must have been the worst mother. I just screamed and yelled. I'm like I have three kids. I scream and yell all the time. I don't know how in the world you didn't scream and yell more. Yeah, you know one of the things I um, was wondering about also, you know, when I think about uh, the way in which Sex in the City introduced a more independent, uh, freer thinking woman and really changed the dynamic of how we think about women and it's the 20th anniversary do you do you see that women's progress is what you might have thought it would be do you find it disappointing how do you reflect on the role of women at, oh, now with the 20th anniversary no that i don't know that i really imagined you know what it might be so much i think i've never been good at that um i don't think i would have imagined that there would be you know so much energy behind something called the Me Too movement. I don't know that I would have ever um, pondered something called Time's Up. Um, I mean, I think I recognized at a certain point while we were doing the show that it was different and that it was touching people and people were connecting with characters and having strong feelings, some, some good, some bad. But I don't know that I would have ever have um, seen, you know, what's happening now. I don't know that I could have imagined it or would have mm. been part of pl- plotting it. <laughs> Um, but I think it's been, as like I said, as painful as and confusing and challenging the conversation has been. I think it's really important, and I'm and I'm I'm glad it's happening. And I know it's not comfortable always, but I'm certainly glad it's happening. And I don't know, you know, entirely why these things. Like I think it's going to be a while before we can trace the exact provenance of all of this. But I think there's mm. an accumulative factor that must be. Considered. But uh, but are are you optimistic that this Me Too movement and Times Up will in fact effectuate a leap forward of change for women? Yeah, I I am, and the, and the only reason I am is that I just don't think that there is any retreating now. I don't think mm. you can put the genie back in the bottle. I'm not saying yeah. that we can achieve everything that we set out as destination points. You know, fifty fifty by twenty twenty think it's admirable i'm you know wanting very much to see more diverse sets you know corporations everything um but you also have to have a pipeline and maybe the pipeline doesn't exist in every industry so you know there's so much that i think is important about this and exciting and like i said admirable um even if it can't be done in the immediate people are energized in a way i've not experienced in my entire adult life and everybody that i've worked alongside they have no interest in this as a folly or a phase or some mm-hmm. sort of fad. This is their life's work. Many people have been involved politically, have been activists for their entire life. So I do think that there will be a significant change and that there will be consequences and um, good. Uh, but I do think it's, it's not, you know, these movements take time. They have to sort of sort themselves out. Other things pop up and then you get focused in that direction. But I do think it would be hard to try to undo this and pretend it didn't happen, make it go away, you know? Yeah, I agree with you. I think we need to be alert to backlashes. It seems like when there have been pivot moments for progress uh, for women or blacks or there's a pushback. And what I'm optimistic about, I think like you are, is that we're aware that the pushback might happen and therefore Mm -hmm. primed to resist it. Yeah, and I think you just take it. You know, you experience the obstacle, you sort of work with it, you, you know, if, there's, if that happens, if there's backlash, so you, you deal with it, you're, you know, 
I think everybody being mindful, respectful, listening is a huge part of this. We're not all, all, not all of us are great listeners. We're going to have to learn to listen to each other. Um, but I think that's good. that's good for everybody, you know. So the question I like to ask our guests is, uh, and given that you're such a broad reading, long time uh, reader, what's the book that changed your life, Sarah? Okay, um, I think the book that changed my life and um, is probably a constellation of vital phenomenon. And I think because it allowed me to go from a book lover and a book that I thought was extraordinary and introduced me to an author who I think we will talk about forever, long after mm-hmm. I'm gone. But it also allowed me to participate in a world that I've admired for so long. And I think it's so, it, therefore, it, it, it changed my life at a time in which I never, I wouldn't be a, expecting mm. to have this new experience happen. Well, Sarah, I, want, I we really would like to uh, thank you so much uh, for taking all this time with us. We've been talking with Sarah Jessica Parker, who is now a publisher and has an imprint called SJP with Hogarth. And the first book that she's published, which is riveting, beautiful, and a must-read, is called A Place for Us already on the New York Times bestseller list and likely to be a book that will resonate with people and I think change the conversation we're all having. So, Sarah, thank you for your time. Thank you for publishing A Place for Us, and I look forward to our talking again. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love talking to you, and I love your questions, and I thank you for... Thank you for a lovely chat, and I hope we get to do it again soon. Thank you so much. We have, by the way, we have uh, Fatima at the store on Tuesday. We're very excited. Yay! Fantastic! I'm so excited. Oh, have a wonderful, wonderful time, and thank you for your support. Thanks so much to Sarah Jessica Parker for taking the time to join us on Just the Right Book. Please continue to send us your notes. You can email us at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com or message us on our Facebook page. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original new music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres, and our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening. Hey, Just the Right Book listeners, this is Christina Torres, producer of Just the Right Book podcast, and I want to make sure you check out our sister podcast, Distraction with Dr. Ned Hallowell. It's a podcast all about helping people cope in our crazy, busy, ever-connected, 24-7 modern world using connection as a key ingredient, and it's hosted by New York Times bestselling author and leading authority in the field of ADHD, Dr. Ned Hallowell. It's free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. And if you haven't listened yet, there are two seasons to catch up on, so you can binge listen in your car, at the gym, while you're cooking, or anywhere.